are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we are picking up this evening in the second volume with Hypothesis 2 on page 23, letter B. Uh, in the middle of the page. And if you remember, we've been discussing for quite a while now uh, the virtue of humility in both St. John Climacus on Wednesday and the Ricatinius on Monday. And uh, it's been a very rich experience. I think uh, we've been taken very deeply into the uh, the nature of this virtue, uh, especially as it relates to God himself as part of the very essence in the life of God and being drawn into that life uh, by being given the gift of humility, which is something that we often don't see uh, as a gift. Uh, Often, I I think when we think about, we think about humiliation uh, or self-abasement, and this is true. I mean, it's, as we will be reading tonight, it's a big part uh, of letting go of a kind of egocentrism, allowing ourselves to take hold of that identity that is rooted in Christ and getting to a point where we no longer fear the loss of esteem in the eyes of others and uh, even getting to the point of being unmoved by it and uh, not an easy thing to do, of course. And uh, we're given multiple stories of how challenging it is, but also multiple stories about how valued the virtue of humility was among uh, the saints and and how they pursued it. They came to love it, uh, again, primarily because of the, the deep intimacy that it brings with God, that in humbling oneself, one is truly exalted in the sense of being drawn into the life, the mystery of, of God himself. And uh, and this is why they came to desire and prize it so so highly. So again, we're picking up with letter B from the life of St. Ephraim on page 23. The wondrous Ephraim, aside from the other virtues which he possessed, had as well this gift, the gift of fearing and avoiding praise, and not just to avoid approaching those who praised him, but also to appear displeased with them in the way that others might be upset with someone who made fun of them or derided them. When he was praised, he would get embarrassed and his face would change color, being drenched by droplets of perspiration. And he would become completely silent as though his shame had cut off his voice. So an unusual thing, again, I think in the, as we find in the gospels, certainly we find in the lives of the saints, things being turned on their head, whereas uh, most people would become uh, ashamed or embarrassed or break out into a sweat if they're criticized, insulted by others. Here we find Ephraim of having formed so deeply this love of humility that exactly the same thing happens to him uh, when when praised, that he would blush and break out into a sweat and and seek to move away from this kind of praise, knowing, uh, I think, as they discovered that praise can often be something that is crippling, Uh, not that it can't be received, especially when it is seen within the context of divine providence and the action of God in a person's life. Uh, But more often than not, uh, it gives rise to, to pride 
And so it has to be scrutinized deeply and, uh, and this virtue must be uh, rooted deeply within us if, it's, if we're not to lose hold of it easily. From the life of St. Saint, Clitica, Saint the Blessed St. Clitica would say that those who visited her, that just as wax melts near fire, so the soul is crippled by praise and loses its power. On the contrary, just as cooling will harden a candle that is melting from the heat, making it rigid, so insults and scorn strengthen the soul and stabilize it. For indeed, as Holy Scripture says, rejoice and be thankful when men shall revile you and persecute you, and so on. And in another place, in mine effect, affliction, thou didst set me at large. So we see a, a very deep dive into the heart of scriptures and into the life of Christ. As others have reviled him and persecuted him, so they will revile those who follow him and will persecute them. You will be hated by all because of my name. And, uh, and so there's something uh, that Sinclitica says here, that the, the soul is strengthened and stabilized uh, by its capacity to bear these things, that our ability to make our way through life without uh, being tossed upon the waves of emotion, uh, of becoming frustrated with others because of the things that they don't say or do say to us, we are able to uh, maintain uh, an even keel, if you will, in in our making our way through this life and in, in our interactions with others. Not only this, but abasement is that which naturally instills in the soul the most important of the virtues, that is humility. For in reality, humility takes its energy from the ridicule, insults, blows, and mockery visited on us. For one to hear it said of himself that he is brainless, poor, of low birth, sickly, and slothful in his work, or for one to be called stupid, or be accused of looking pitiable. So there's something that stands out here, I think, when we look at this closely. Uh, she says that it naturally instills in the soul the most important of the virtues, of course, uh, but it also uh, takes its, the humility takes its energy from this kind of ridicule that humility grows in strength the more one is abased in the eyes of others. And so it's not a kind of passive reality, in other words, for us, that there is something living and active and shaping the mind and the heart when we go through these experiences, and especially when they are embraced in a spirit of faith, that it deepens and perfects humility, it stabilizes the soul, but also strengthens us in this virtue, that one begins to develop a capacity to deal with all things of life. Things of this sort strengthen humility, she writes. Such things our Lord heard and endured. He was called, for example, a Samaritan who had a devil. He was struck, wounded, and called a deceiver and a thief. Now, we must also imitate the true humility of the Lord, because there are many who pretend to be humble in external form and thus gain, in this way, glory among men. However, by their fruits, it is made known that they are not humble, since when they are in the slightest bit insulted, they cannot bear this, but immediately, like vipers, pour out their poison. So what we had put before us here over these past months is the humility of Christ himself. And this is not something that can be feigned. For the moment that a person is insulted, then they begin to, as it were, spit their venom. That it doesn't take long to uh, strip off the veil of this kind of false humility. And uh, it's not going to produce, in other words, the kind of fruit that we've been speaking about over these past weeks, 
which again uh, elevates one to participate in uh, not again the natural virtue uh, even of, of patience, but to participate in a very quality of God himself that uh, we can love unconditionally and uh, bear all things, endure all things uh, for the sake of Christ. And the more that these insults come upon us and are directed towards us, the stronger that, that humility becomes and the freer that the heart becomes as well. And uh, I don't imagine that this is something that can develop within us unless we pray for it and, uh, and exercise our faith in the embrace of it. Uh, indeed, it takes a great deal of faith to be able to take hold of these things as they are happening to us and uh, not give ourselves over then to that initial movement that wants to uh, take hold of our hearts. And this is what's important, I think, is the struggle. And we'll hear this come up in uh, the, the paragraphs that uh, follow here, that uh, one has to begin somewhere, and it's there, with the struggle, with the turn towards anger and directing that towards others. We have to fight this as it begins to emerge in our hearts. Okay, letter D, from the life of St. John the Merciful. The marvelous patriarch John had a nephew na whose name was George. It so happened that he was once insulted by a certain innkeeper in the city. He was very much offended by this and bored heavily. The reason for this was the great difference in the social status of the one by virtue of his relationship to the patriarch and of the other who, in spite of his insignificance, had insulted the former. So the nephew went privately to see the blessed patriarch, complaining to him with tears, his heart hardened about the outrage which had befallen him. Patriarch John, seeing that his nephew was overcome with emotion and wishing to comfort him and give him courage, told him, this man dares to open his mouth and so greatly insult my much beloved nephew. May the Lord be blessed. I will do something to him which will startle all of Alexandria. As soon as he saw that his nephew had taken some comfort from his upset, he added, my troubled child, if you truly wish to be my nephew and be called such, be ready to accept not only insults, but if I may say something more, even beatings. For true nobility is characterized not by bloodlines, but by the virtue of one's soul. He then immediately called the overseer of the city's innkeepers and ordered that he no longer accept the usual contribution or any other assistance to the church from the man who had insulted his nephew. Thus everyone was amazed by the inimitable forbearance of the saint, understanding that this was the punishment appointed for the innkeeper that was to startle all of Alexandria. So it was uh, that he freed him from having to tithe, as it were, to the church as uh, one among the members of the innkeepers. So this was the punishment we are to see, that the one who insulted his nephew is actually rewarded uh, for having done so. Uh, but his punishment is no longer to participate in his giving to the church. Uh, and because of the value of what he's teaching his nephew, that if he is going to be his nephew, and if uh, he's going to follow in his path, he has to learn this capacity to bear not only with insults, but with something far greater, even things such as beating uh, by others. And, uh, and if this is to develop within his soul, then he has to let go of the notion of bloodlines or uh, someone having greater social status for any reason. And uh, this is a difficult thing. Uh, 
I think sometimes even in the church, you know, I've mentioned at times where they've des described, you know, cardinals and bishops as princes of the church and things like that. And I've never been very comfortable with that. And uh, sometimes priests can, um, you know, take on that air too, often placed upon a pedestal. Now, often they're knocked off that pedestal pretty quickly. And uh, and it's a dangerous thing to be placed up upon one because the moment that you do fail, uh, you, then you are knocked off of it pretty quickly. Uh, but there is this danger of seeing one as having a certain social, oneself as having a certain social status. And uh, and certainly in our culture, that can be true. And if, if anything, the priesthood has been humbled immensely in more recent years uh, in, uh, you know, a very harsh way. Uh, but, you know, maybe in some ways that's been part of the providence of God, um, you know, to refocus, uh, you know, not only what a priest is to be, but I think what we are to be as Christians, which is uh, not only to, to serve and, and love others. And, uh, you know, today's gospel in the Eastern Rite was, you know, those who cause one of these little ones to sin, better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and for him to be thrown into the sea. Uh, but I think it's more than that. I think it's also seeing ourselves as being those little ones. And so responsible, responsible for protecting that which is precious that has been given to us and not abusing the grace that God has given to us or holding it cheaply. And uh, so part of that same gospel that was read today was the idea of if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That we are to be willing to let go of worldly things and attachments to them, even if they are benign uh, or if everybody else seems to engage them, if they become an obstacle to our living out the gospel. And, um, and so it is, you know, with what is being described in these, these paragraphs that, you know, one of the things that becomes a stumbling block for us in following a humbled, crucified Lord is pride. And you remember, we hear, we hear this even in the uh, apostles, you know, are, they're on their way to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested. And the words are still, you know, in the air of his telling them, I'm going to be arrested and in prison put to death. And they're arguing amongst themselves about who will be the greatest. Or can I have, you know, can we have, you know, be seated one at your right, one at your left in the kingdom? They're, they're looking for worldly power and glory. And, uh, and so even those who are closest to him um, failed to understand through what he was going to conquer. And it would be through this humble, self-sacrificing love. This is what would overcome the human heart and overcome sin. And there is no other path for us, this is the narrow way and that we must strive to walk. And uh, perhaps as Christians, we don't do a good job of putting that before us often enough, uh, or certainly of preaching it from the pulpit. Sharon writes, was he relieved of the obligation to tithe or was he, or was the tithe refused? I don't think I understand. I think he was relieved of ha having to sort of make this tithe on what was made uh, to the church, uh, that this is what was would be shocking uh, to everybody else, that even despite the fact that he insulted his nephew, that he would be given this as a kind of reward. And it, the word punishment is italicized here. So I think that's how we're meant to see it. You know, it's, it's not a punishment for him. From the narrative of the travels of St. John the Theologian. When the Apostle John was saved from that fearful shipwreck and the sea for 40 days later deposited him near Ephesus, he found me, Prochorus, 
also standing on the beach, exactly as he had charged me before the shipwreck. When he embraced me and thanked God, he afterward took me with him together, and we went to Ephesus and stayed in an area that was called the place of Artemis. There, Dioscorides, Dioscorides, a leader of the city, had a bathhouse nearby. So this is the Apostle John. And it's a little story from his life that uh, most of us probably aren't familiar with, uh, other than in, in and through these writings. So after shipwrecked, uh, they find themselves in this little town. And it, it becomes this extraordinary uh, story, as we will see it unpacked, of you know the power of, of humility, but of this humility of Christ, this extraordinary uh, em embrace of self-abasement that then, again, has the capacity to work miracles, which is something that we've heard throughout the Evergatinos, that even without words, that enacting the virtue that we are called to and that we see in Christ in and of itself carries the power of the kingdom. And this is, again, what will manifest itself uh, and what we will see within this story. Then John said to me, my child Prochorus, let none of the inhabitants of the city learn who we are or for what reason we came here until such a time as the Lord reveals his will to us and we come to boldness in God. So a, a radical trust in the providence of God, not taking hold of the circumstances. You know, having been exiled, shipwrecked, uh, at sea, floating for 40 days, you know, he tells uh, Prochorus not to, to say a word as to uh, how they found themselves in this situation, but rather let God unfold things before them in his own time. And while this might not speak directly to humility to us, I think uh, it does uh, in the sense that uh, it tells us to put things in the hands of God rather than seizing hold of circumstances as we often would want to do for ourselves. And it's not an easy thing, as we will see. While the apostle was still saying this, along came Ramamana, a brazen hussy and servant of Dioscorides, who took care of the bathhouse. Everyone avoided this woman because of her extreme nastiness. As she was looking after the baths, she noticed us. Now, she immediately thought, surmising from our poor appearance, that we were in need of food, that because of our poverty, we would be useful to carry out tasks at the bathhouse without her having to pay us a large salary. Thus she said to John, fellow, where are you from? What is your religion? We are foreigners, Jewish by descent, but by the grace of God, Christians. Just a short time ago, we were saved from a shipwreck. She added, would you like to light a fire for the baths and your companion to take some work on the exterior of the bathhouse? The Apostle John accepted the offer and agreed to the work. So straight away, she led us to the bathhouse and appointed us to do various labors. Every day, she gave us three tray of bread for our food and four obloi. About the fourth day of our stay there, John, out of difficulty in lighting the bath fire, was unable to warm the baths to re the required temperature. So a couple interesting things. You know, she sees their poor state. You know, they've been humbled, you know, certainly in a radical way. Uh, having been shipwrecked, they look it. And uh, so she feels that she could take advantage of this, that I'll put them to work. It'll be cheap labor. And John, despite his uh, position as apostle, does not cling to that, uh, but rather allows himself to be drawn along by the circumstances, again, to allow things to unfold in accord with the providence of God and to allow God to bring about what he desires. And so they're given this menial labor 
And as we will see that it is labor that they're not even capable of doing very well that brings upon them the ire of this woman, Romana. Louise writes, could we say that to be made humble, Peter was made to renounce Jesus Christ three times as predicted by our Lord. The proud Peter humiliated himself tremendously by doing so. Right, and I think that's the case with humility. It's not something that we seize. We're made humble uh, by the circumstances and finding himself doing what he never imagined. Uh, uh, not only fleeing with the rest of them when the Lord was uh, arrested, but also denying him, denying, in fact, that he ever knew him. And so Peter, bold, strong, uh, leader of the apostles, you know, to whom uh, they looked, finds himself humiliated, you know, that it happens exactly as the Lord says, that uh, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And so we see something like this happening to the apostle John, uh, being made humble, that is, through the circumstances and being as it were, taken advantage uh, by this woman, Romana. When Romana came and saw this, she impudently struck John with her hand and having knocked him to the ground, assailed him in an hysterical voice. You pitiful derelict, she said to him, exiled because you cannot do anything. Why did you agree to take work such as this? It looks like you are a swindler. I'm going to expose your schemes. You are working for Romana, who is known as far away as Rome. From now on, henceforth, you will be my slave. Do not get it into your head that you can flee from your mistress, because it would be very easy for her to capture you again, if you dare to try something like that. And I will do you in for your misdeed. Get rid of an evil thought then, and just as you pay attention to food, so heed your servitude, lest you die mercilessly. Boy, so she, she is a piece of work, uh, as the author describes here, that uh, she beats him, knocks him down, and then moves very quickly, again, to discern his, his circumstances. And so to force him into, solid, uh, into servitude, uh, but then she exalts herself. It's incredible, the language shifts. She begins to think, speak of herself in the third person. She is known, Romano is, Romana is known all the way to Rome and her voice will carry there if you try to run away and you'll be hunted down basically, she tells them. And so in her own eyes, she, again, she becomes exalted and uses that uh, to seek to manipulate them even further. And yet we, we see John's composure here. John kindly answered her, Mistress, just a short time ago, I began this work, about which I knew nothing previously. Time, however, which enriches a man with experience, will certainly make me skilled in this labor. The hussy left after this. I was overtaken profoundly by worry, however, and from all that had so harshly happened to John, and all this before even four days had passed since arriving at that place. So it's, you know, even Prochorus is uh, shocked that after everything that they had endured, including the shipwreck, uh, that uh, being treated like this, threatened, forced into servitude in four days' time, John responds to her kindly even after she beats him and threatens him uh, with servitude. As soon as the apostle John understood with his spiritual insight, the thoughts that I had, he said, Prochorus, my child, you know the kind of shipwreck that befell us because of my doubtful thoughts about the fact of the lot of Asia fell upon me. Not only we, but the rest of the passengers who were in no way responsible suffered the consequences of my chastisement so that they too were shipwrecked, even if ultimately they were saved by the providence of God. 
And I suffered 40 days in the water in order to learn that I should yield to God and not to mundane thoughts until God, by his mercy, brought me to dry land. Knowing these things, you should not be upset, but thank God for temptations and do not even consider the cold threats of a little old woman of uh, temptation. So go and take up your work and do it with abundant care. For our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the creator of all things, when he became our prototype and guide in perfection, showed to us the prophet of patience, saying, In your patience possess ye your souls. So, you know, he seeks to guide Prochorus here when he picks up the thought that he's worried, that he reminds him that part of the reason that they experienced the shipwreck was his calling into question, uh, even if in his own mind, the, the providence of, of being uh, given responsibility of Asia and, uh, and balking at this, uh, not only did he suffer, but all those who were on the ship with him. And even thanks be to God, they were all saved uh, from drowning. You know, he, you know, spent 40 days in the water. And so he's saying, you know, we have to learn the lesson of that reality and now set ourselves to trust in the providence of God. And why would we be worried about temptations that come from a little old woman when we know uh, that the temptations that come from the evil one are far worse, and those things that often arise from our own hearts are, are far more challenging. And so do not fear, you know, this little old woman who's breathing threats at you, you know, trust that, that God is going in his own time uh, to, to guide us through this. And, uh, and he holds Christ up, as both prototype and guide and perfection. And I think this is the important thing. And we've talked about this often, that when we speak of these virtues and we speak of the challenges of the ascetic life, that Christ is the standard for us. And the virtue that he embodies is what we seek uh, in and through the spiritual life. And, uh, and so he tells Prochorus, um, you know, to hold on to what we've learned here. Uh, your patience will lead then to the salvation of your souls, your, your soul, your ability to endure this trusting in the providence of God uh, will strengthen you for something far greater. The promise is something far greater. Since these words drove the sadness from my soul, he gave me courage the next day, then R Ramana came and said to Jaman, I've heard a lot said against you and that you are not careful about your work and that you have no intention of completing it so that you will be let go. You will gain nothing thinking things like that and your brains are serving you ill. For if I find out that this is true, I will not leave one part of your body intact and I will crush every member of it. So, <laughs> so she becomes more vicious as things go on in the face of uh, their patience, in the face of John's kindness, and even promise that over the course of time, uh, he will improve in the trade. Uh, she does not let up for a moment, uh, wanting to make sure that her grip upon them is firm uh, she concocts this idea that, you know, they're going to uh, be lazy, show that they're unfit and not capable to do the job, hoping to be let go of it or be freed of it. And she warns them, if you take this path, I'm going to rip you to pieces. To these things, John did not answer back at all. And Ramana taking his mildness and peacefulness for cowardice and stupidity, even more nastily threatened him and said, are not you my slave, you wicked one? What do you say? Do you accept your lot? Speak, tell me. 
Yes, John said, we are your slaves, both my companion, Prochorus, and I. So, you know, little does she know, you know, meekness is not weakness. That, as we see here, it's the greatest uh, strengths that here John is able uh, to face this woman who's breathing out threats against them and has already thrown them into a kind of servitude and, uh, and you know, calling them stupid, all kinds of things, wicked. And yet John is able not to respond with, with anger or hostility, uh, not to return like for like. She encouraged by the words, immediately set out to take away our freedom. Without delay, she went to see a certain solicitor and presented her cunning scheme to him. Two slaves whom I inherited from my parents escaped four years ago, along with them over the passage of time, were also lost their ownership papers. But they have now returned to me and have admitted that they were, are my slaves. So can I draw up new purchase and ownership papers? To this, the solicitor replied, if they acknowledge before witnesses that they are your slaves by way of your parents, then you can do this. So the deception runs deep that uh, you know, she compels John to acknowledge that they're you know, her slaves, and now she's going to seek to have that written down that she would have true ownership over them. John, understanding all of this through spiritual insight, said to me, my child Prochorus, know that this hussy will ask from us shortly a written confession, since she wants to confirm with witnesses the ruse that we are her slaves. Be careful that you do not feel sorrow in your heart on this account, but rather joy. Because by this test of ours, we will be glorified by God and he will reveal who we are. I imagine Prochorus at this point is uh, thinking perhaps maybe it's a good time for me to part with this guy, <laughs> John, take separate ways. Uh, because it would be very difficult. You know, at this point, they're going to be signed into slavery. And for him, uh, imagine, I imagine he was thinking you know, that would be the end, you know, their life would be over. While John was still saying this, Romana appeared. Grabbing John by the hand, she started hitting him in the face and said to him, why, you evil servant, did, well, I'm sorry, why, you evil servant, did you not greet your mistress and bow before her when you saw her coming? You are the slave of Romana. And she forthwith asked him menacingly, are you not my slave? John answered her, not only once, but twice I told you, we are your servants and slaves of whom you derelict. She asked again, of him at whose work we labor, John replied, that is right. Ramana said in conclusion, the work is mine and you are my slaves. And John added, both in word and in writing, we confess we are servants. I want it in writing, she said, in front of witnesses. If you wish, John said, and do not lose time in doing what you intend to do. Uh, that sounds reminiscent, doesn't it? You know, as uh, our Lord is sending off, or as, you know, Judas is leaving to betray him, do quickly what you intend to do. And so John is telling her, you know, don't waste time in doing this, you know, what you intend to do. Go ahead, run off and do it. Thus taking us with her, she led us somewhere near the temple of Artemis to a public area where she obliged us to confess in writing that we were her slaves. She then led each of us back to the work at the bathhouse to which she had already assigned us. In this bathhouse, there had resided from its establishment a demon who three times a year would lie in wait and drown anyone who went there without protection. Now, Domnos, the son of Dioscordes, looking after his bodily beauty, went alone to the bathhouse just after midnight to bathe. The demon pounced on him suddenly and drowned him. When his servants came and found him dead, they went out crying, saying, 
Woe to us, for our master is dead. What will we do now? As soon as Ramana heard about this, she tore off her head covering and pulled at her hair, crying and shouting with lamentation, Woe is me, what am I to do? What will I say to my Lord Discordes when he learns of this? There is no solace to be had in this disaster. Maybe he will die, being unable to bear the weight of the, this grievous news. For my Lord Domnos was an only son. O great Artemis of Ephesus, help us. So the, the tables turn that the, the real evil one, the, the demons, you know, within this bathhouse uh, who drown a certain number of individuals yearly, uh, take then this leader's son and she is undone or at least feels that she is undone, that this will be to her ruin. Saying this and more, she tore her skin and beat her face. John, coming out of the place where he was working, said to me, my child Procris, what happened? What happened to this woman? As soon as Ramana saw us speaking together, she grabbed John tightly and said, you magician, we know the magic that you performed, for since the day that you arrived, our God has abandoned us. Either you resurrect my Lord's son, or at this very moment, I will separate your body from your soul. John said to her, Mistress, explain to me, what is the cause of your sorrow? Then she, overcome by uncontrolled rage, raised up her hand and hit John, saying, Cunning slave, exiled for your evil deeds. All of Ephesus already knows what happened, yet you ask as though you knew nothing. The son of my master, Dioscortes, died inside the baths. So it's hard to imagine, but her rage, even in the threat of great loss, increases. And she, she becomes uh, uh, even more angry at, at John and more threatening. When John heard this, he seemed to me somehow joyful. So it's curious, isn't it? It's what we heard from Synclitica that as one undergoes these things, that the humility strengthens, the virtue grows within the soul. And uh, so John begins to take on a kind of otherworldly joy here, that in the face of all these threats, in the face of everything that is happening, uh, he's not, not undone. Uh, and setting himself to prayer without anyone noticing, he went to the bathhouse. Bath he immediately cast out the unclean spirit from there and restored the soul of the dead boy to the dead body. And taking him by the hand, he led him out, saying to Romana, Take the living son of your master and do not concern yourself. When Romana saw this event, she was amazed and falling at John's feet, she asked that he forgive her for all the evil things that she had done. He then answered her, woman, believe on our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom I am a disciple and apostle, and all of these things will be forgiven you. She said to him, I believe, O man of God, from this moment and all that comes from your mouth. In the meantime, one of Dioscorides' servants had run to tell him of his son's death. Dioscorides, did not expecting this disaster, immediately collapsed as though run through by a sword and died. When John heard of this, he went and resurrected him as well. And all of those who came to believe, he also baptized. Many other citizens of Ephesus, because of these events, also embraced the Christian faith and were joined to the church. So an extraordinary story, and I appreciate your patience and, and listening to it. Uh, but again, as we've, we've heard uh, so often in, in the past, this embodiment of the virtue of Christ carries within it the power of Christ, the strength of Christ. And so to be obedient as he is, one becomes a confessor of Christ and uh, or 
to turn the other cheek, as we heard, uh, has the power to cast out demons. And likewise here, to experience this extreme abasement, to be treated as a slave, uh, to be threatened with death itself, uh, then uh, gives John this capacity to raise both the son and the father who both died, as well as to bring to faith the woman who would only have put them to death and enslaved them. And so it's meant to be, you know, again, not just a story for us, you know, it could be, you know, reduced to that, uh, a kind of hagiography or a pious story, rather than speaking to us of the, the reality of what takes place internally when we embody the very spirit of Christ, this spirit of humility, and the, what is possible through it and what is accomplished through it. You know, here, a pagan woman, a woman who has no mercy whatsoever, you know, and uh, is uh, willing, you know, to enslave two men, take advantage of them, is, is brought to faith in, in the end. And at the same time is never for a moment belittled by John uh, or treated in the same, same way, but only with the kindness and the mercy of Christ that when she does beg for forgiveness, that he shows her the path uh, to find that forgiveness and to find the fullness of life. Sean writes, interesting how the one knew about the scheme by spiritual insight. Isaac the Syrian calls that uh, theoria or basically the soul's knowing. In other words, he got this info not by hearing or the body's senses. That's right, that you know, one of the fruits of humility uh, is discernment and this kind of spiritual insight that he's able to see what is going on, you know, within the hearts of others, but also uh, in, in the life of the uh, leader of the city and his son, what had happened to them, uh, but also to be able to see the hand of God uh, acting in and through these extreme circumstances. And so thank you, Sean. That's a good point that, you know, what, uh, comes through in the story as well is the spiritual insight that comes to those who uh, have embraced humility, this truthful living, living in the truth in this radical way and entrusting themselves to it fully, uh, that they begin to, to think as Christ uh, thinks, you know, to put on the mind, they put on the mind of Christ fully. And we see what is accomplished in and through it. Any other comments about this rather lengthy story? Good one to read over. These, you know, are, are very powerful. And I think, you know, we've moved away a lot from reading the lives of the saints. And again, I think so, so often, I think, uh, a lot of what is you know written about them is dismissed as hagiography, and we often lose sight of what is revealed to us and through these stories and what is to be gained from them. Letter F from the Gerontocon. Several brothers once visited Abba Agathon, for they had been informed that he possessed a great spiritual discretion. And wishing to test him to see if he would become angry, they said, Are you Agathon? We've heard said that you are debauched and proud. He replied, Yes, it is so. They said to him once more, Are you Agathon, the loose-tongued lover of slander? I am he, he responded. And the visitors spoke to him a third time, Are you Agathon, the heretic? To this he answered, I am not a heretic. After this answer, they asked him to explain. 
Why, when we called you, so many things did you admit to them, while you would not, however, endure the accusation that you are a heretic? And the Abba said to them, the first things I accepted, since they were beneficial for my soul, but not the accusation that I am a heretic, since heresy is separation from God. On hearing this reply, the visitors marveled at the spiritual discretion of the Abba and departed, benefited in soul. So a curious thing, it might seem strange to us that they could in, that he could endure uh, the the accusations of being debauched and being a slanderer, and yet uh, would not uh, uh, accept the accusation of being a heretic, and that this causes separation from God. You know, a kind of turning away from the truth that has been revealed to us. Uh, and we, we hear Paul, you know, speak about this. If anyone preaches a gospel different from us, even if they are, you know, angels themselves, that you are not to, to, to receive it, that, uh, that there, the truth is revealed to us, uh, again, in and through a person and through Christ. And so to be accused of a heresy or to be a heretic is one who is turned away in mind and heart from God and what he has revealed of, of himself. And, uh, and perhaps, um, you know, a heretic would be more along the lines of, uh, I think even like the scribes and the Pharisees who accuse Christ of casting out demons by Beelzebul, by evil. Uh, so there's a kind of blindness there to the truth, a darkness of heart there that exists. And this is something that he uh, cannot accept, that he is a believer uh, to deny Christ, to deny the truth of what he's revealed, is to deny him his own self. And so he can accept all those other things as true about himself, knowing that they are true in so many different ways and have been true in his life. And so willingly can accept them. But to deny he who is truth is to deny himself and his deepest identity. And in our day and age, um, maybe heresy is thrown around too often, but it's also un underestimated in terms of its significance in the spiritual life or what it is reflective, truly reflective of. And, you know, I think with a, a turning away from the gospel or turning away from the ascetic life, the loss of this capacity of discernment, uh, the capacity to see things with the spiritual insight, and to put on the mind of Christ is destructive, not only for oneself or for others. And, uh, and so it should never be held as something that is a light, nor should a person be easily accused of it. Uh, Steve Yu writes, it seems so ironic to me that humiliation can bring us closer to God. And yet speaking for myself, something that I try to avoid by instinct, it is as if some of my instincts are programmed against growing closer to him. Yeah, I think <clears throat> it's a good point because I think part of this is the uh, effects of the fall. That, uh, you know, a weakened will, a darkened intellect, concupiscence often described in the, the West. And that even when we do see things that are truthful, uh, we often do not have the strength of will to embrace them. And even if we might have the strength of will, sometimes we do not see the truth because of the darkness of our sin and the darkness of our intellect. Our, the eye of the heart has not been purified. And so I think there is this tendency, as you, you describe it here as instinct, but I think this, you know, that we then seek to protect uh, 
that which seems so important for our identity and dignity, when we are not seeking that in Christ, when we've moved away from living our lives as having that identity and dignity in him, then we seek to protect what we've built for ourselves. And, uh, and so instinctively, you know, there is this kind of fight or flight uh, aspect to us as human beings. And I think that's true on the spiritual level as well. When we're attacked, you know, we'll strike back at a person or we'll build up walls around us to protect ourselves from uh, being attacked in this way. And it's only uh, in Christ that we are freed from this and that we are able to make our way uh, back to God through the very path that we moved away, uh, that fall comes through the pride, uh, our being lifted up comes through, through humility. Sheila writes, I love this story. The humility to say, yes, I am corrupt, sinful person, but no, I do not reject God, even in that horrid weakness of soul, right? So recognizing our own poverty and uh, our capacity even to commit the greatest of sins and yet to hold on to that faith as the, the, uh, the most precious thing there not to deny Christ. Any other comments about anything that's been read so far? Okay, just one little last one here, number two on page 29. An elder said, he who praises a monk hands him over to Satan. So if a monk embraces the life that he has, has stripped himself of everything, has humbled himself in mind and body uh, precisely to pursue Christ, then to praise him is to place a stumbling block before him. Uh, and so uh, one would respond to such a person as Christ responds to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Uh, when someone would, would praise a monk, because it's so contrary to the very life itself, that you know, part of the reason that they embrace this path is to set aside the self or ego in such a radical way, and so to praise them is to become a tempter, uh, to 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 leave off of the path that they've freely chosen to travel. So that brings us pretty close to 8.30. Uh, so instead of launching into another one, anybody have any questions about anything that we've read? Again, solid food um, and some of it very difficult to digest, uh, no doubt. And uh, I don't think any of us would see ourselves so easily, perhaps not that it was easy for any of them, but like John, to take the path that he did, that we would have the faith or the fortitude uh, to endure what he endured. Um, but yet all of this points us to Christ. And I think even, you know, within that story, we are told, you know, that, that Christ is the prototype there. And so we are not meant to see only what John is doing, but we are to see what has been revealed to us in Christ. Any final comments? Good readings, I think, as we approach the Feast of the Incarnation. And we won't be meeting for this group next week because it is actually Christmas. Uh, and so to think about humility and what is made manifest in the Incarnation <laughs> is an important thing for us. And so to take some of these stories into this week and into your prayers would be a good thing. Okay. So when we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, Our who Father. art in heaven, hallowed be thy be name. name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And our God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.